Hello and welcome once again to the Irish Mythology Podcast. I am Marcus O'Hishkin. And I'm Stephanie Nihirni. Uh, just last week we had the Feast of Bialtana, a traditional Irish May Day celebration celebrating the arrival of summer. Now, the celebration of this day can be traced back over 1,000 years in Ireland. And it probably goes back a lot further than that, but we'll get to that later on, because today's story is linked to this time of year and takes place in the days following Bialtana, and we'll be discussing why that might be significant. Now, this story is part of a larger saga, and we're going to be telling the whole tale over the next few weeks. If you're following us on social media, or if you've listened to the trailer we released last week, or if you got the clue from the title, you'll have guessed that the saga in question is On Cade Cobb Moitura, also known as The First Battle of Moitura. Now, this saga tells the story of how the Tuatha the god people, who are more commonly known today as the Tuatha Danann, came to and conquered Ireland taken three quarters of the island from the Fair Bulk. So there's a lot of questions to be asked here. Questions about whether the story belongs among the great sagas that survive from oral traditions, or whether it's a literary invention of the medieval era. And who were the Fair Bulk supposed to be? And why did the two a day become the two a Danann? And we'll be looking at these questions and others over the next few episodes. But without further ado, let's go into the story itself. They came from the sky in great dark clouds, landed on the mountains of Connemara, and they brought a shadow over the sun, and it lasted three days and three nights. It is the third day of Bialtana when Shreng, champion of the fur bulg, Envoy of Chief Yokud McGurk arrives at the mountain. Darts of bitter cold rain bounce off his saturated brown tunic, the colour of sodden turf. Ends of black hair creep from his hood, tangle with whiskers, his thick wiry brush, one wet mass. Before the elevation, his head tilted back, neck cradled between the heads of two fat spears that cross his aft, straining to see, his eyes screaming out for a scrap of light to guide them through the sheets of rain. He stumbles, stops in his tracks, steadies himself, there, cloud, like the scouts maintained, and Chief Yoka dreamed, and Druids prophesied, he's filled with dread. This cloud, its impossible feet, to swallow the sun, banish all light, where no object should or could succeed. It has vanquished summer's fledgling heat. A blinding flash lights up the sky. His mouth opens in awe. He sees the horror. Horror. For a split second, through that mountain capping cloud, a masthead, grotesque, 
white, composed of human skulls. Then, the sky is black again. It is gone. Shreng takes a defensive stance, mud now crawling up his feet, over his ankles, towards his knees. He raises his round red-brown shield, covering the lower half of his tawny face, and reaches without looking for the sword on his waist. Another flash. He shields his eyes, but through his fingers sees a bow, a stern, a great ship's hull of such gargantuan capacity that hundreds could sail, land, invade, but it just hangs there in the sky over forest, mountain, plain and lake, then all goes black again. Shreng leaves the sword and reaches to his other side and grips his heavy club, supposing he may have to fight. When another crash of thunder sounds, the sky is lit, allowing him to see the path, the sharp incline, and on that path, the warrior. The stranger moves into focus, clouds part before his stride, each step drying clumps of ground beneath his spotless cowskin shoes and above, his willow-green tunic flows, his gold hair glows in brilliant rays, bounce off his shoulders and up to form a torque around his neck. Plants sprout up and bloom in his wake, and bit by bit the darkness lifts. Shreng is so transfixed by the stranger's face, and his monotone eyes, treacly pools that manage to convey, yes, dread, yes, dark abilities, but to his surprise, cordiality and warmth. So he doesn't notice, until it explodes, the inferno on the peak, turning the dark cloud to mist, and that skull-masted ship, aflame, and further, in the distance, two more, the same, great hulking beasts, burning with such intensity, that it seems the earth, having had no sun at all, now has three. Those three suns have no alternative but to burn and cast down their searing heat. They burn so bright, that Shreng longs for the darkness he thought was his enemy before he could really see that it was his most precious friend. Without regard for the fiery scene, the beautiful warrior waves a hand, brushing away Shreng's dismay. Oh, don't be worried. They have no crew. My people left some time ago to settle, to build, to put down roots. Shreng is dumbstruck 
He understands the stranger's words. This is no foreign tongue, but Irish. Shrang flings his shield to the ground. It lands upright, stuck in the mud. I am Shrang of the Fur Bulg. Who are you? Who are your people? You speak like us, yet. The stranger too throws down his shield with such force that it's half submerged in the newly dried earth before his step. He laughs. <laughs> I am Brez of the two a day. You haven't heard of us? There are many tales. Shreng shakes his head. He knows all the other tribes. And this man is no Furbolg despite his language. No Furbolg has hair so golden or eyes so dark. A tribe of the Formor? Do you come from the north? Shreng inquires of the man. Brez shakes his head. Former? No, I don't know this tribe. We were here before, with Nevid's kin. We swore we would return when the island came alive again. A smile creeps across Brez's face, and in a single fluid motion, he reaches back behind and retrieves a sleek, sharp spear and releases it from his grip. Shrang doesn't flinch. The spear penetrates the earth, an inch at most from his muck-encrusted feet. Brez gestures towards it with an open palm. Shrang, without a second thought, uncouples one of his, and reaching out he turns the handle towards Brez. Brez bows and takes hold of the bulky weapon. Shrang takes the sleek, thin lance from the ground, and the warriors are silent. They marvel at each other's alien craft, running their hands over shaft and pointed end, calculating the damage each could do. And finally, Brez speaks. An impressive weapon. It could bring much death. The two a day would accept half of this land and peace. Your people can choose the half you keep. Shreng nods, still regarding Brez's weapon. Indeed, it will obliterate any shield and crush the bones of enemies who dare to fight the Furbolg. But this spear you have yourself is sharper than any I have seen. It is right that ye and we should both of us avoid this fight. But I will have to take your offer to my people, to our chief, Jokit. The two warriors continue to talk for hours about the things they carry, the people they defend, and their hope of peace. Then, firm friends, they depart. Shreng travels east to Tara. Brez goes to the north 
and east to Machrain. That was all very civilised in the end anyway. Um, so at the beginning of this story, you feel that there's something really terrible, something very dark afoot. We have this heavily armed warrior, Srang, and when we meet him, there's this powerful sense of dread. Now, we have dramatised this a little bit, but in the texts that we refer to, it's fairly clear that Shrang, who is sent by King Yokid to investigate the strangers, is wary of these newcomers. Now, Shrang's fear is significant because he's the champion of the Firbolg, and that means he's their best warrior. But then this very Irish thing happens. Brez speaks to him in Irish, and his immediate reaction is, hang on a second, this lad is obviously from around here somewhere, but I don't recognise him, so I'm going to ask him, who are your people? Yeah, and you, you'll get that today if you arrive somewhere, anywhere really in Ireland, down the country, and a local notices you, notices you uh, that you have some knowledge of the place, and there will be a bit of an inquiry as to how you have this knowledge and, and who your people are and so on. And as soon as you explain that your granny was such and such from up the road, you know, there'll be a change in tone and, and you'll be in for a feral natter, I suppose, that could go on for quite a while. Um, actually, I remember being outside Rorty's in Glen Colonkill oh, yeah. and someone and talking away to one of the locals and he says, where are you from? And I said, I'm from Drada. And he says, oh, do you know a fella called Kieran? He's an artist. And sure, he was ahead of me in school. Like, anyway... <laughs> Ireland, yeah. but um, yeah, so that's the point is anyway that you know there's a realization and there's a, a kind of a sense of trying to make a connection because this person also speaks the same language in that story. And that's what happens here when when Shrang realizes that you know Brez is speaking the same language, it puts him at ease. And there's the the you know the added thing that you know they're both obviously enthusiastic about the tools of their trade, a bit like you know when. Say two lads that are into scooters or motorbikes bump into each other out the road and there'll be a stop and chat and they'll be all talking about about their machines, you know. Admiring each other's uh, 125s. That's it, yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, so there's a few different texts um, that have this story. And the main one that we looked at for the dramatisation that you just heard uh, was from Lady Augusta Gregory's Gods and Fighting Men. And it contains the actual phrase. I'll, I'll read it out. Um, Brez was the first to speak. And when Strang heard it was Irish, he was talking. His own tongue. He was less uneasy. And they drew nearer and asked questions as to one another's family and race. So in our version, you hear Brez tell Strang that his people have been in Ireland before. And it was at the time of a people called the Nevid. Um, now, in the textual medieval versions of the tale, this is also the case. But what happens in those is that the people of Nevid are attacked by the supernatural Formorians and the survivors split into three separate groups and go, go their separate ways. Yeah, so one group goes to Britain and that becomes the Britons. One goes to Greece and becomes the Fir Bullock. And the third goes north to a group of mysterious islands populated by sorcerers. And uh, that sounds like the, the better crack end yeah, of the split. It does, doesn't it? But um, yeah, so these islands are populated by sorcerers and these become the two Adidanan. And this chronology takes us back to the idea that we mentioned at the start of the show. Um, and that's that the saga of the first battle of Moitura is actually a medieval invention. 
And it, yeah, it's believed that the, the story of the god people arriving as an invading force and defeating the Firbolg was a creation of the pseudo-historical literary school. Making the two a day one of the historical races who colonised Ireland was a way for the Christian scribes to absorb this, bo- uh, this body of mythological tales about old pagan deities and cleanse them of their apostasy by demoting them from the position of gods to sorcerers adept in the heathen arts. I'd love to be demoted to the position <laughs> of sorcerer. <laughs> um, but yeah, so it's it's the great work of the Irish pseudo of Irish pseudo history um the in the eleventh century Lauer Gawala Heron, uh, the Book of Invasions of Ireland, and we'll refer to this as the LGE uh, as we go through this podcast. And, and that's the, that's where the best known version of this story uh, is preserved. So the LGE version doesn't strip them of all their magic. While some versions of the story have the two a day arrive by sea in regular boats. Um, in this version, they come from the sky. And in Augusta Gregory's adaptation, they come through the air and high air. And that's really interesting because uh, for a story whose purpose is to suck the godliness out of the heathen divinities of old, it leads leaves something in that directly ties them to, you know, divinity and to, you know, supernatural powers. And that's that God was literally supposed to live in the sky. Heaven was up, hell was down. You also have this in Norse mythology. Um, Asgard, the world of the gods, is at the top of the world tree. And you have all these other worlds underneath with Midgard, um, our own world, right in the middle. So why would the writer of the text that appears in the LGE do this? So, you know, it might be for entertainment purposes, really. You know, it's certainly a much, it's a much flashier entrance coming in from the sky, you know, than landing in a regular old boat at the, at the coast or whatever. But possibly um, it could also symbolise a fall, uh, like the, the fallen angels of, of, of biblical fame. Um, you know, they come from the sky, conquer and rule the earth. And later on in the pseudo-historical chronology, they are defeated by another race of humans and then they retreat underground to the she mounds. And we mentioned the she last week when we talked about uh, Bowen. Yeah, and so their trajectory is sky, earth, underworld. And I, I advise people to get the, you know, it's not, I'm not saying it's aliens meme fella out <laughs> of your head because, you know, it's it's not, it's... Coming from the sky to the medieval mind really signifies divinity, not aliens. They weren't thinking of um, little green men at all. That you know. (laughs) No, I guess, I guess. Um, But yeah, it also might be down to the fact that by the time the LGE was actually being compiled, the second or or great battle of Maitura, um, the saga that that the first was composed to replace, hadn't gone away. So what happens is you have both stories... Uh, incorporated into this text and as the two a day have these you know godlike powers in the second battle uh, perhaps the writer decided to restore these powers to them in in the first battle for kind of continuity purposes they were yeah creating their own canon yeah exactly I mean it would have been very confusing if they were just regular warriors in, in the first and next thing all of a sudden they're casting magic spells and doing all sorts of mad things in in the second. Yeah, it wouldn't make sense. No. But anyway, the reason uh, that it's fairly certain that this chronology is a medieval fabrication 
is that an earlier earlier pseudo-historical text exists that lists the um, settlements of Ireland. Uh, it's called uh, the Historia Britannum, and it's from the 9th century. And three of the LGE's invasions correspond to tribes in that text, and you don't really get them anywhere else. Um, but there's no mention here of the Tuatha or the Firbolg. However, there's enough independent material um, that has its roots pre-9th century concerning the Tuatha as gods to attest to the authenticity of their divinity and pagan myth. Um, can you talk a bit about who wrote the, who was responsible for the 9th century Historia Brit- Britannum? A lot of it was compiled from other material that was like inherited from the Romans and then added to. I don't think the, the Irish invasions were in any of the Roman uh, bits. I know there was, there was borrowings from Tacitus about Germanic tribes and stuff like that, but I don't think any of the. I don't know where. The, I actually don't know where the, um, the, the three races, the Caesare, Parthalon, and Nevid. Came, came out of from. no, but they were, they were very much um, an attempt to biblicize the you know Irish myth anyway. So I, I don't know. Huh. It, was, it was probably probably some monk. Could have been the venerable bead. Could have been <laughs> yeah. some monk, yeah. <laughs> some random monk. Oh god. So um, in the next episode, we are going to spend a lot more time on the two a day and where these events might fall into a chronology if we were to construct one today. But for now, we're going to concentrate on the very often overlooked Firbolg. So why were they overlooked, do you reckon? Well, I will tell you. Um, It has a lot to do with the way their story is inserted into this chronology of invasions as almost sort of like a plot device to set up the two-a-day as just another race who settled in Ireland. Um, the, The LGE was the main source for many later writers and it was so well preserved because of its popularity um, and the fact that it, it you know it aligned this mythical history of Ireland with the biblical chronology of the books of Genesis and Exodus um, and it, it gives the Gaels or the, the Milesians who come after the two a day a genealogy that then can be traced back to a grandson of Noah thus legitimising them as, as the chosen people of God and the legitimate rulers of Ireland. But the Firbolg are only given 37 years of su- supremacy uh, in the LGE, and the only relatively well-known story concerning them is the First Battle of Moitura, which, as we've mentioned, was most likely written to displace uh, the popular Great Battle of Moitura, which is now known as, known as the Second. But that spectacularly failed. Um, so why then do we even bother with them? Uh, you know, they well they do appear in other tales. So it's um it's actually a fur bullock who taunts Angus in the wooing of a tain, um about being fostered. And we and we mentioned the wooing of a tain actually in our last episode on Bowen, um, which you should go back and listen to after this if you haven't already done so. Uh but it is a fur bullock that taunts Angus in this story about being fostered, and they appear to be sort of a vassal people of the two a day here. Um, but it's doubtful that the author of the first battle just plucked the name from the air. So there's there's no conclusive theory on what their name means, but um, Lady Gregory translates it as men of the bag, and plenty of those around. <laughs> Sorry, that was a bit on the nose. But anyway, uh, elsewhere they're bag men. 
But um, bulk can also mean stomach or bellows. So when I think of, you know, bellows, I get this image of air going in and out and, you know, the bellows itself rising and falling. And then if you add in the picture of the stomach, it's kind of like the motion of breathing in and out. So maybe this signifies that they are the mortals in these tales. So maybe we're all furbolg and, you know, that's a good enough reason to keep them in the stories. We're all bagmen, that's what you're saying. Bag lady. I do, I feel like sort of as quarantine continues, I do sort of have the look of Brenda Fricker in the first Home Alone film, but anyway. Um, so yeah, there are also theories uh, that place the Furbolg in the real prehistory of Ireland as a tribe, or at least, you know, a group of tribes. So there were tribes in Northern Europe and Southern Britain called the... Um, the Belge, Belgae. Belgae. I've been calling them Belgae, but, you know, it could mean Belgae. Who knows what way they pronounced it themselves? No, <laughs> I don't know. Um, but yeah, so supposedly that's where Belgium gets its name. Uh, if you are a person who has some knowledge of that, please do email us. There's probably us a linguist out there tearing their hair out going, no, it's pronounced this way. Yeah, I'm sorry. Well, we'll correct our pronunciation if you let us know. Send us a voice note or something with the correct one. Um... But, you know, it could be that perhaps there is a group connected to these tribes settled in Ireland at some stage. Uh, one of the subgroups of the Fir Bullock were the Fir Domnan. And the earliest known maps of Ireland and Britain that were compiled by the Greco-Roman uh, geographer Ptolemy uh, lists a tribe that were called the Dumnoni. Uh, Dum, Dumnoni. Mm. Uh, I feel like every time we do a podcast, I always end up with like a litany of names. <laughs> <laughs> I just can't pronounce. Um, sorry, my Greek is not <laughs> up to scratch. But anyway, they were called Dumnoni, uh, living in the territory that today comprises of Cornwall and Devon. And you know, I, I didn't include it in the notes, but um, right up until the time of... And I think it's actually mentioned in the TV show Vikings, but right up into the Saxon era, De- Devon and Cornwall was known as Dunmonia the, before the um, great exodus to Brittany. I feel like that was very relevant and could have been... Yeah, well, I, I remembered it. <laughs> okay, anyway, go on. <laughs> Anywho, yeah, so this has led to um, speculation that there were tribes of Britons um, or speakers of what, what are now known as P-Celtic languages, like Cornish and Welsh living in Ireland at some stage before the arrival of the Gael, whose language, the ancestor of modern Irish, was um, of the Q-Celtic branch. But that's just speculation, really. Well, if we're going to speculate, uh, we might as well mention the possibility that the fir bullock could just be a folk memory of a pre-Indo-European settlement of Ireland in the Mesolithic or possibly, uh, you know, the people of the Neolithic era or their myths and their gods. Um, but it is interesting that although some Furbolic characters have names that sound kind of quite like Gaelic-Irish names, for example, the king in the first battle of Maitura is um, Elchid. That's how I pronounce that, but I don't know, you, you've a different I went with a uh, spelling guide in um, Mark Williams' uh, book. He has a, an old English. Yeah, um, um, well... Oh, English, Either way, um, um, other, but other names uh, like Shrang, um, and every time I hear Shrang, I think of that character from the Turtles, Krang. Oh, oh yeah, yeah. yeah. Anyway, it so, makes me think of like um, sort of somebody out of 
Captain Caveman, some sort of caveman kind of thing. You know, it's like oh yeah, somebody yeah. With a big, yeah, know. but you know, Shrem, Rinald, Sangin, Fogan, uh, like they all sound like they're not. You know, like they're from somewhere way off that they're not quite kind of you know Gaelic Irish names. Yeah, they they do they sound um, kind of older or something, but um, or or like something out of the Lord of the Rings or something like that. Um, yeah, they are a bit Lord yeah. of the Ringsy. So, um, if you don't know the story at all and you want to avoid spoilers, um, you can skip ahead about thirty seconds, uh, as the the piece of information that we're going to mention next would be a spoiler, and it's revealed in in the episode after next. But anyway, the the Firbolg end up losing three quarters of Ireland to the two a day, and end up settling in Connacht in the west of Ireland, which which they they choose their their um, quarter of the country. But as a result, um, what little of their story that remains in folk tradition tends to be associated with the province of Connacht. So we have this story here. Um, it's pulled from the skills collection on Dukas.ie. And it was uh, written down in Shrule and County Mayo. And for those of you avoiding spoilers, this one is safe enough as it's radically different from the accepted version of the saga. Hurling dates back to the time of the Firbolg and the Tuatha My father told me a story about these two great reigning powers. They arranged to have a battle one time on the plains of Maitura. The Firbolgs from Crook Maia and the Dedanans came from Mount Gable. Before the battle started, the Firbolg got their horses shod by a smith who lived in our village. When he had finished, the chief of the Firbolgs asked him if they would be victorious. The smith told him to take the leaves of a few heads of cabbage with his sword, and if there was blood on the leaves in the morning, the Firbolgs would be defeated. And in the morning, there was blood on the leaves. On the following day, the two parties met on the place arranged for the battle. The Firbolgs declined to fight and they said to get 50 of their best men from each side and have a game of hurling instead. So they started a hurling match, and before the game was half over, they commenced killing each other with the hurls. Nearly all the fur bugs were killed in the match. They were all buried in one grave, and there is a castle of stones over this grave, Cahar Naglocha. And the field they played on was called the Field of the Hurls. The Kong Erecht is held in this field every year. So that is madly different from what <laughs> what we're going to hear over the next few episodes, yeah. and I can't help but imagine that when that version came out, there was a, there, you know if Twitter had existed, there would have been lots of you know fanboys uh, tweeting hashtag not my my tura and you know going <laughs> mad that this hurling element was brought into it. Yeah, I kind of yeah, like there should there be killings of all these local games anyway. Um, that, that's true. There, there's some, actually I won't mention the, the places they might mention, but I know a few places in Meath now where they'd be running battles uh, when they're playing their, their neighbours. Pretty sure there was a full-on pitch battle with hurls when I was in secondary yeah. school, just between the lads. <laughs> 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 yeah. You know, I could have told the teachers that they were just doing, you know, a bit of a verbal like, uh, battle reenactments or something, you know, I don't know. But anyway, before we go... We're just going to mention the significance of this story story occurring around Bialtana. And just to mention, Bialtana is the name of the month of May in Irish, but the La Bialtana, the festival of Bialtana, is the 1st of May. So the timing of this tale is significant because that date um, has huge significance in Ireland going well back over a thousand years. 
And we, we know that the celebration of Bealtaine um, was well established by the time the first Battle of Moitur was written because um, one of the earliest mentions of the festival is in a text called Cormac's Glossary. And this text is attributed to Cormac McQuillanon, who was a bishop in the ninth, late 9th and early 10th century. He was also the king of Munster for a while, and then he died in battle and was later considered to be a saint. Um, so setting the story at that time of year would give the writer access to kind of a toolbox of cultural references, similar to a filmmaker today setting their story at Christmas and try to imagine if Home Alone wasn't set at Christmas or Die Hard even. Yeah. Die Hard's a great film. Ah, oh, gosh. I just want to. If they. It, it'd be nowhere if they hadn't said it at Christmas, though. Nobody would be talking about it. Go away. Yeah. Alan Rickman's a genius <laughs> in it. Anyway, listen, that's not what we're talking about. But the point is, you, you know, you, in, you don't even have to imagine really uh, where Die Hard is concerned because, you know, just look at the sequels, really. Um, but, you know, we mentioned that Law Belton on the first day of May is considered the first day of summer here in Ireland. And it was the tradition that if the weather was bad on that day, then the whole of the summer would be a washout, really. So when the two a day arrive um, in that scene that we mentioned earlier when they when they arrive, there are three days of cloud and darkness. And that for, you know, the medieval Irish reader at the time would have foreshadowed something really bad happening um sort of you know in the same way that you know when you hear dark music in a film you know like it's not going to end well for whoever's in the scene at that point yeah yeah or you know if, if you see it's somebody in a in a horror film going down into the basement and on their own you know that that's a yeah 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 but anyway, there's a whole range of Bialtana superstitions as well about it being bad luck to give personal possessions away at that time of year. And, you know, you, you have the two lads there swapping their weapons. So if a feeling things maybe aren't going to turn out all, all that well for them in the long run. Yeah, but um, we will just have to wait and see exactly what happens there. So that's it for today's show. Uh, we'll be back in a couple of weeks to continue the story. And while the Fur Bullock deliberate on their next move... King Nuada of the two a day sends the three uh, Marugu, uh, Bao, Macha and Nevin, to give them some supernatural encouragement to strike a deal. But in the meantime, you might like to support the Irish Mythology podcast by signing up to our Patreon. And you can find us on Twitter at Irish Mythology P, on Facebook, Irish Mythology Podcast, on Instagram at Irish Mythology and online at irishmythologypodcast.ie and if you're listening to us on Apple Podcasts or another platform that um, lets you give ratings and you like the show do us a favour, give us a good review five stars and because it helps us reach a wider audience so Slán lives Slán, thanks very much for listening so um, in the meantime stay safe, wash your hands and for the love of God if you see blood on your cabbage don't embark on any pitch battles. Chief of me shivering. Or even hurting games. <laughs> we'll see you again, Slon. You have been listening to the Irish Mythology Podcast, presented by Marcus O'Hishkeen and Stephanie Nihirni. Written and produced by Marcus O'Hishkeen. 
Music by Damiano Baldoni, Celtic Warrior, on an Attribution Creative Commons license.